Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yak Gadget, made in America, based outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Yak Gadget offers all kinds of storage accessories, quick mount motor mounts, anchor systems, track mounted accessories, even paddles. Go to yakgadget.com and get your kayak decked out for your next trip out on the water. The 153 Bay Company, based in Troy, Ohio, make everything from plastics to custom painted hard baits. Hook them hard and hook them off. All of our baits are made to order and all of our hard baits are hand painted to order. So go to the153anglers.com to place your order today. This segment is brought to you by Jigmasters. Step up your game with high-quality performance jigs, spinner baits, buzz baits, and more from Jigmasters.com. And always, when in doubt, get the jig out. Welcome to the Feather and Fur segment on the Paddle and Fin Podcast Network. Join me, Brad Hurlebus, as we sit around the campfire with this week's special guest to talk hunting, dogs, traditions, and all things outdoors. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Feather and Fur. Brad Hurlebus here. Tonight, we have a special guest, Anthony Cavalli-Singer, waterfowl guide. But as a quick side note before we get started, when this broadcast airs, it will be my first bass tournament of the year in the boat. So wish me some luck because I have nothing put together for a pattern at all. Nothing but a handful of dinks and very cold, snowy Wisconsin weather. So here we go. Let's bring Anthony in with after that little side note. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we met through social media like everybody these days, really. Um, you know, common interests and everything. And you're a waterfall hunter, guide, upland bird hunter. How did you get started in hunting? Was it a family thing? Did you take it on in yourself late onset? A little bit of both, actually. So um, my earliest memories are uh, of hunting 
or watching my grandfather actually like reload shotgun shells when I was three, four years old. He was a professional trap shooter in Oregon. And where I'm originally from is, is Portland, Oregon. And I used to watch him sit in his reloading room and just pump shells out of that mech reloader. Um, <laughs> and, and look at his, his armoire of guns. Um, and eventually it kind of was a natural progression. I got into uh, trap shooting. Um, I shot a little skeet as well. Um, I started shooting competitions when I was about 10 or 11. Um, and I, I competed pretty, pretty well. And my grandfather wasn't an avid outdoorsman, but he liked to pheasant hunt quite a bit. Um, and so he took me on my first pheasant hunt in Eastern Oregon when I was 10. Uh, I shot my first rooster there. Um, and I was pretty much hooked. Um, I was really fortunate to have a lot of mentors, uh, along my, my path. So during middle school, um, I actually had sixth grade teacher uh, by the name of Mr. Ernst and his son was my age as well. And they grew up on a 80 acre farm in, in Fairbow, Minnesota, which is South Central Minnesota. And uh, I ended up shooting my first duck there when I was 12 years old. And I hunt there once a year until about high school and my dad's job moved me around to a couple different states. Um, and I'd still go back every year to go hunt with them on, on opening day uh, here in Minnesota. And it just kind of took off from there once I got my, my driver's license, um, which I was in Texas at the time. So, yeah, five states, um, <laughs> my whole uh, childhood. I think it was eight different schools I went to, three of them, three different high schools. But um, it allowed me the, the chance to travel around, meet new people and, and hunt with new people, and hunt in different states. Um, so by the time I got my driver's license in Texas, I was driving down to the west end of Galveston Island, shooting redheads on the coast. Um, I mean, just eating it up and it just took off, took off from there. And I've been, you know, logging 40 to 50 days of just duck hunting every single, um, every single season, you know, plus the, you know, extra 20 or so of goose and, and, you know, uh, another probably 20 of, of pheasant hunting. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a grind. Yeah. It's definitely becoming a good thing. Um, by the, by January, I'm, I'm ready to ready to call it quits and just sleep. <laughs> um, that wasn't go hibernate like a bear. Right. Right. And that was until, until this year when I ramped it up actually at the end of January and, and had it down South and, and got to get some snowies. So, yeah, that's, that's quite the resume. I mean, to, I mean, to think about it, like you, your family kind of introduced you, but when you met a teacher along the way and then you got your license and that really, you kind of built that up on your own. What was yeah. it like hunting the coast? Like, that had to have been so different. Like, did you have any mentors when you were down in Texas to hunt the coast, or did you just kind of just jump right into them salt saltwater flats and the backish sprays? No, I, I I had a good buddy who uh, who had a house down there. His name's Ryan Buckley. I still hunt with him every year as well. He comes up. I'm currently in Minnesota, and he'll he'll come up from Texas, and we and we hunt together. Um, but he uh, he kind of offered if you know for me to come out with him and. Uh, uh, yeah, it was vastly different. You know, we're just hopping off a, a rock levee and, and wading through a half mile of, of, of the flats. And I have no clue what's going on, you know. And, you know, we show up to a point and all of a sudden there's just divers all around us. And, you know, far different thing than shooting mallards over a pothole here in the upper Midwest. Um, no gate. All right. So I've never I've been to Texas once or twice, never to the coast. I'm like, I, my first thought is there's got to be gators. No, no gators out there. All right. Uh, you have to be really careful. Uh, skin rays. You can step on them, and uh, they they puncture your calf actually, and you could lose lose part of your leg. So you kind of have to shuffle your feet. 
Um, All right. Any good flax fish or minnows, yeah, you got to shuffle your feet as you're walking through. Interesting. Stingrays have never been on my list of objects to avoid while hunting. I'll yeah. keep that in the back of my head if I ever go to Texas. Even sure. though I doubt I'll be there alone. <laughs> <laughs> so you got there and you were hunting the flats for divers. And then is that when you made it back? Because you were hunting Minnesota still once a year. So you, you were familiar with the potholes and the mallards and all that other good stuff up here. Right. Like what brought you back to Minnesota? Was it the hunting? Was it a career thing or? School. Uh, all right. High school in, in Texas. Um, and just through kind of a weird happenstance, I... I spent my first year of college uh, out in Oregon, and I got to hunt in, in uh, the Pack Northwest, which is a, a whole nother experience. Um, again, All right, I got to step. I got to cut in quick. Did you get a harlequin? No, no, no. Never a harlequin. I know they get a few of them out there, don't they? They a handful on the coast. Yeah, they yeah. Um, no, lots of lots of pintails and lots of wigeon. See, when I lived in California for about six months, I was I was helping a DU guy down there. I went for a to like for a youth day and I just helped volunteered. Um, and we were talking and that they shoot pintails like we shoot mallards. Correct. Like, and that just blew my mind because I hunted the Mississippi hard for an entire season to shoot a nice sprig Drake pintail. And I mean, I burned myself out chasing one duck and to hear them, they're like, oh, we shoot them like they're mallards. Yep. I mean, people would get annoyed too with, with shooting pintails because you only have, I think it was a one bird limit thing. I, I don't think they've changed it, but you know, they would get annoyed by, by shooting, uh, shooting their sprig because they were just tired of it and they wanted to shoot all mallards and, and wood ducks. I remember wood ducks was the big thing. I just, I would laugh because I was like, you go to Minnesota or Wisconsin, you shoot a wood duck every hunt, you know, it's, I mean, especially early, early. Yeah. I mean, early season, I feel like that's all I wind up getting is wood duck. I mean, because yeah. especially some of the holes I have, they're just, they pile into the woods in some of the spots I have, especially if we have a wet year and it's like, Man, three ducks just like you're done with them. Like those spots aren't even set decoys. You walk in, you wait, they come in, you shoot them. It's like that was quick, right? Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, hung it out there. Um, that was a crazy experience. I had a. I mean, that year was probably my best year. I mean, I think I, I limited like every other hunt. It was just unreal, and that wasn't. And that wasn't saying like trying to brag there at all. I mean, that was just. There were so many birds that year. I think it was 2017. Um, it was just unreal, um, the amount of birds that, that got shot that year. But And, and, and they have a longer season too, don't they? I mean, they, they have more than a, longer. yeah. And, is, and it, is it 100 days or? I don't think it's quite 100. I think it. I think 100 with um, the lessers, the, the goose. Okay. I think, because I know they have an early resin season and then it, their duck season rolls through, and then you can shoot lessers for like another month almost, um, which I got on a few good good shoots um, for lessers. I, got a, I was lucky enough to have a, a, a neighbor uh, a neighbor friend kind of have a private duck club connection and kind of got through, and we got some got some really good shoots out there. Um, yeah, Oregon, I think, is definitely a sleeper state for, for waterfowl. It's hard to DIY because of the, the public land situation, but... Sure. Uh, it would, it's definitely a sleeper state. There's lots and lots of birds out there. And then there's, is it Oregon or Washington that's got like six or seven different species of Canada geese that go through there? Like and you have to be real, yeah. and you have to be, and you have to really know your goose out there, don't you? Yeah, right. So Oregon, um, and I'm almost positive Washington is the same way. Uh, I'm not 
totally sure though. But Oregon, um, in the Northwest zone, there's a, a dusky goose that will winter there. And so you have to take a special goose permit test to just get your, your permit. And you have to identify all the different types of lessers and uh, Aleutian geese. And um, yeah, you really have to be on your game because there's a, just a small little portion of, of dusky geese that, that winter that are endangered, so. Sure, yeah, I, I read about that somewhere. I'm like, man, pretty much if it's got a black head with a white spot on it here, you just shoot. Yeah, right. <laughs> like right. there's no identifying anything here. Is that a, is that a, a greater, is that a lot? It don't matter, just shoot it. It's a, yeah, it's a can of goose. <laughs> um, so yeah, after after Oregon, um, I, I moved to Minnesota for, for school, for, uh, for college. I'm a forestry natural resource management major. I just finished up in December here at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities um, and came out here. My family ended up coming out as well, um, and they live here full time as well. And um, yeah, just been staying out here the whole time ever since. So Nice. So with a degree, do you see that helping you in waterfall hunting? I mean, is that a degree that can help with like waterfall production areas and that? Because I know quite a few hunt like through grouse hunters like that's a pot like that's a pretty big profession when it comes to logging and grouse ha management habitat like do you feel like you can use that in waterfall um i think there's parts of it you can i think the general emphasis um is pretty tough because you know you're focused on on solely trees and logging sure. management um there are courses you can kind of tailor yourself where you can take like the prairie restoration courses um or like the there's a, I took a woogie interbaceous plants course, which is um, generally you were working on smaller shrubs um, okay. and working on those. So getting out into a waterfall production area, you know, I may not have like the greatest breadth of knowledge on, on the, all the grasses, but you know, I can definitely get out there and identify um, duck food and, and, and figure sure. out what they're eating. And especially the same with the uplings with pheasants and whatnot. Um, I think the big thing it, it helps me with is just teaching me how to break down um, how to learn about that stuff. So, you know, we have like dichotomous keys for trees where you can go in and you're like, okay, I know this tree has a certain leaf shape and a certain bug. And, and then you're able to figure it out through, um, just breaking it down. And it kind of teaches you how to do that with like the prairie restoration grasses and, and stuff. All right. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Just wasn't sure if there was like a little, like an inlet there I didn't know about between that career path and like waterfall management, or if you even really wanted to do waterfall management for a career. It's just, I hear forestry and habitat and you're a big waterfall hunter. I'm like, I wonder if there was a career path there that he was chasing. Um, not totally directly. Um, my, the, the original goal was when I chose forestry is actually you become a, a conservation officer. That was kind of okay. the, the original goal. Um, having just graduated, I, I still have a plan. Um, but right now I'm, I'm kind of just a full-time guy and planning on playing that out for as long as my body can take it, you know, and, and yeah, those are long days, early mornings, oh, late nights. Very I mean, much. there's a lot, I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of work behind the scenes, especially when you have cl bring clients in. I mean, I do the volunteering thing, taking veterans out, but, and we put a ton of time in beforehand with scouting and all that other stuff, but. When you have someone paying, it changes the it changes the game, right? Because now there's an expectation, there's a level of performance someone's expecting out of you. Exactly, and there's there's definitely a pressure to it and a, and a different stressor. Um, I know a lot of guys that have quit guiding because 
uh, it, it kind of ruins it for them. You know, it, they, it becomes a job and, and it's not the enjoyable hunting experience that they used to have. Um, for me, I still feel that pressure for sure, um, especially first thing in the morning. And if we're not seeing birds at first light, especially for duck hunting, you know, we're not seeing birds at first light, I start to get a little anxious. But you know, as soon as the, the clients, you know, shoot their first bird, I'm like, whew, you know. Right, gets that monkey off your back, or now it's now it's been a successful hunt. Right, right. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's still days where it, it definitely feels like a job. You know, when I'm picking up decoys at 10 p.m. and there's just no end in sight. Sure. <laughs> I just want to sleep or I'm just so hungry. But, um, you know, most of the days you just got to sit back and relax. You're laying in your layout line. You're like, I'm just hunting. And I'm still making right. You know, I'm with my dogs. It's, you know, You know, what could be better? I mean, you got a good point there. I mean, for those 60 days, I'm assuming Minnesota also has a 60-day season. Yep. I mean, for those 60 days of ducks, you're, you're chasing those birds with your dogs. And granted, you don't know all the people in the blinds, but that doesn't necessarily matter because for me, it's more about the dog most of the time anyways. Sure. So, I mean, you get to watch all those milestones of the dog and watch the training progress and um, just watch those retrieves and watch them build confidence. And, and that's just a great thing to experience as well. Yeah, very much so. Um, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to, to bring your dog along. You know, and I, I work with mine quite a bit. I run them in hunting tests in the summertime. Um, I know you're a pointer guy, but in the retriever world, the, the hunt tests are a, a pretty big deal and a, and a good standard. Um, well, I started with the lab. I mean, oh, I, just went to, I just went to a grip. No, I worked closely with an HRC when I first got my lab because I rescued him and he was nine, well, rehomed him at nine months and he had no obedience at all. But I'm like, okay, I don't even know where to start. Like I was lost. I'm like, I don't even know. So I worked, started working with an HRC, um, Fox Valley Retrievers. Okay. And they're like, let's just start over like it's a puppy. And that's what we did. And he turned out to be a great dog, but I, I'm really, I'm real, I'm familiar with HRCs and the hunt tests. Sure. I never chased that circuit. I never, I trained just for my dog to be for me. And I completely respect the hunt test circuit. I just fish a lot in summer, so. No, that's fair. Um, yeah, for me, it's not that I, I chase the ribbons. You know, a lot of guys chase the ribbons, which is totally fair and, and cool if you want to do that. And um, for me, I just like to use it as a as a standard to see how my summer training is going. Because um, I, I work with them almost every day. Um, you know, in the heat of the summer, it might be three to four days a week. Um, sure. But, you know, to get out there and then, you know, they hunt many days as I do. So, shoot, I mean, they're probably logging. I mean, this last year, I think they logged 70 days in the field um, of just waterfowl hunting. And um, not to mention all the upland hunts that we've done. So to get out there and, and, and see them during the season, especially when I'm guiding. And by the end of it, I mean, they're just so in tune. I just, you know, I open up a kennel in the back of the truck. You know, they're just boom, at heel. We walk, they hop into their into their little Momarsh blind or on the stand. And it's just game time. And um you know, having the clients kind of walk by and, and just kind of be amazed. And I kind of laugh, too, because a lot of times the clients will go to pet them. And, you know, my dogs are completely friendly, but they just they don't really crave the attention because they know it's business. Sure. And right. it, it, it kind of cracks me up there, at the, you know, towards the end of the season, especially because they're just all game, all game time and uh, they're ready to roll. So the clients aren't necessarily as. Whoa, as that's not working so well. <laughs> I was going to share a picture of the pup, but that does not want to work out. Like at all. Let's stop that. There we go. 
All right. Well, that didn't work. I don't know what's going on there. We'll blame my internet connection. Thanks, TDS. <laughs> um, but no, what kind of dogs do you have? So I have two labs. Um, All right. One black lab. It's my female, Annie. She's three years old. And then I have a silver lab, which I know there's a, a controversy um, between if, there, if he's a Weimaraner mix or if he's a true lab or, or what have you. Personally, I don't really subscribe to either argument he picks up the birds for me and um does it well he's uh he's my male henry he's four years old um, all right so yeah my female is quite a bit smaller i i kind of laugh because i attribute both of them if you've read where the red fern grows uh big dan little ang they're uh, pretty similar my male dog's a big hard-headed super athletic male and he'll just run through a wall to go get a bird my female's sure. a little bit savvier um she's cleaner on the um on the hunt test side, runs cleaner blinds while my male's more of a meat dog. Um, but both of them get it done. They just have their own kind of way of doing it. So, yeah. And that's always nice. To, that's always fun to watch too, especially when you can see like, I wouldn't say one dog, well, I'll say it, one dog might be a little smarter than the other and say, sure. I kind of know how the current in that river is going to work. And I can just, it might not be a perfectly straight line, but I'm going to grab this bird here rather than swim straight to it type of deal. And it's interesting to watch how dogs work sometimes that way. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it definitely helps, you know, having both. And I, I run them both together. Um, okay. And so having both, it, it, it saved me a lot of, a lot of steps, especially. And uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many birds we would have lost, especially during the snow goose season. I mean. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We hunt in uh, flooded rice fields that are about mega thigh high down there in Missouri and Arkansas. And, um, how many, you know, snow geese would sail three, four hundred yards, and uh, sure. there's no way I would not, or there's no way I would have found those birds if it wasn't for the dogs. So right. So you should. So flooded rice fields. Are you are you hunting over like hundreds of floaters then, or? What do you, no, what do you no, got going we, on uh, there? We use tall skakes. So the, the okay. Flooded, depending on you know the rain situation and. I mean, those skates are just a muddy mess during that time of the year. Um, some fields, we had like two or three fields that were actually somewhat dry, which basically the ground would just be tacky at that point. Um, but the rest of them, you could be walking in, i say, average about 6 to 12 inches of water, and then the rice would come out of that, you know, up to your knee or thigh. What's the bottom? What was the bottom consistently like there? Was it pretty Dumbled soft and muddy, or was it... Just, <laughs> the thickest mud you could imagine um and how and how many decoys were you running on average uh every spread we, we so we set 15 fields um every spread was 2000 um socks plus uh eight vortexes um and a handful of, of full bodies in and around the the actual blinds themselves so that had been miserable yeah so yeah we, we, would set, we would set every single uh you know the first the first week and we you know we have to go set every field and i mean it takes two guys six hours to set a field so you can do the math it would just i mean we were we were staying up we were setting fields into the dark using the atv lights to try to light our way which 
will usually look kind of funny in the, the next morning when you go to hunt it and you see a bunch of string of decoys off to the side. <laughs> I wonder why. Because, I mean, with snow geese, you got to chase them. You're not just setting up these 15 fields and then you just stay there. No, we, we would. So um, the, the operation that uh, I worked for, um, he's been doing it for 20 plus years in that area. Okay. And so what we would do is he would do the chasing before the season, actually, and find the flight pattern. So we would set up on bigger roosts, which would usually be uh, wildlife refuges or um, game areas, skate game areas um, that were uh, non-huntable. And then uh, he would kind of find their flight pattern off to the south. Of, of each area um, where they were going either along a river, they followed ditch lines really well um, down there, just kind of weird happenstance. They just will follow these ditch lines and we would just set up these traffic fields and just run bigger spreads than everyone else. Um, Got it. Yeah, I mean, we would still pull, I mean, we weren't chasing feeds like a lot of the guys are, but you know, we still had plenty of our, our 200 bird days, so. That's crazy, I mean, I just, just thinking about the shotgun cell shortage, trying to shoot 200 birds in a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many clients on this average snow goose hunt? Eight. Eight. Okay. Yeah. So we would, we would try to run eight. Um, sometimes the guys would, you know, book their whole field. So we only have like three or four guys, um, you know, and depending on, on the guys and if they had magazine ex tube extensions, you know, where you could shoot 10 plus one, um, you know, I'd like to have more guys in the field, you know, especially if we have a good day, you know, I, I had a few days where again, not naming names or anything, but, um, there was a couple of clients who come out and they booked the whole field, um, for themselves. And there were two guys, it was two guys, they booked the whole field. They barely shot a gun. Uh, they had only duck hunted once in their life. And I mean, we were just covered up in birds since, since shooting light. And I think they shot like four and in a six hour hunt and it should have been a 70 bird day. And so, sure. it, you know, it actually helps having more, especially if you got a bunch of killers in the blind. It's, uh, well, that's kind of what I was thinking, especially with those type of numbers of decoys and things like that. And just, if you got two poor shooters and that's all you have, I mean, they're just, they got to get frustrated too. I think so. I think so. It's, I know I would. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't help to, you know, you're, you're, you're four birds, you know, and then you're missing, shoot, they probably missed 50, 60 um, birds. And it was just, it was just terrible, to be quite honest. That, that was a rough day. That's when it felt like work. Sure. Working with them. Um, and then I'm assuming guides don't shoot with you. You guys don't have, you guys don't bring guns or. Uh, no, we do bring guns. Okay. Uh, you know, with the snow goose game, it's. The, the culture of it is a lot different than, than guiding for honkers or guiding for ducks. Um, it's it's about killing the biggest number. That's what the guys, the guys come to shoot and they want to kill a big number. And a lot of them will ask me to shoot as well. I mean, they know that, that the more guns means more birds and the more sure. birds they take home. And, um, and so, yeah, we would bring guns and shoot. And with those guys, I didn't shoot right away because I, you know, I thought since they booked their own field, they might just want to have their own thing going on. Then they started asking me to shoot, and um, so I, I would. And in fact, they actually that day they went to lunch and uh, left the blind, and I stayed in the blind, and I, I, I shot I think six or seven just myself <laughs> while they left. So I was add to the pile to, for them. Yeah, so I was able to give those to them. But um, yeah, it, the more you know, the more guns, and especially 
I, I've had, had some clients that can really shoot and that takes the pressure off, but it's also, it just makes it so much more enjoyable. Um, sure. When, you know, cause especially with guy, even a waterfowl hunt, you, you may only get two or three flocks in a day and those get, those flocks may make it, you know, um, right. they make the gang. If, if you don't, if you only pull one out of a, a flock of a dozen geese, then, you know, really that, that's, you know, skates your hunt. And if you're, if yeah. you're you know, you're 10 out of the 12 and that's a whole different story. So, Especially if you have, if you're hunting that just that right time of season where you haven't had a big push, it's a lot of locals. You might only get one or two flocks of eight to 12, maybe 15 birds in those, those smaller flocks. And if you don't hammer on both them groups, you're not leaving with a limit. Right. Right. No, you're, you're, you're totally right. Um, another thing too with snow geese is, you know, you got to think it's a conservation season. You know, you're not, a lot of times with ducks, I'll, if I don't, if I don't have the right pass on them, I'll let them go, especially if they're locals. Cause you know, if you just keep banging on them, they're going to leave and then right. think about it long run. And so with these snow geese, so a lot of times the guys weren't confident with taking those tall shots and, you know, snow geese, I don't know if you know, but they decoy vertically. So they will be up on top of you and side cloning down. And they'll hover above you a lot of times at 60, 70 yards. And, you know, if you have a, you know, extended choke and you're shooting BB, um, yeah, you'll be able to knock them down, but you just got to be comfortable, especially if, if you have a group of 10 guys all shooting at once, that would definitely do it. But, um, you got to be comfortable taking those tall shots. So clients that, that, uh, weren't, you know, really kind of put a damper on the hunt because maybe that day it was a rainy cloudy day and they're just picking your blinds apart because there was no shadows or anything. And you're going to have to shoot them at 60. But they didn't sure. want to. That makes it tough. It makes it really tough. Yeah, it's different. That that's a completely different game. It's not like walk. It's not like duck hunting the potholes where you want them feet down. Or if you're layout blinds hunting a cornfield for geese and you want that you want to land that first flock while the second flock's working in and you got birds within ten yards. It, it sounds like snow. I, from everything I've seen with snow goose as well, it's a completely different game and animal. It, it is. I mean, it was a steep learning curve for me. I mean, calling the shots just drastically different because um, like I said yeah they're just right on top of you um and yeah you just can't be afraid you just i'm not saying take you know crazy shots where you're just gonna wound game i mean there's still a, a game bird and, and you still have right. respect for life but you got to be willing to to really kind of extend out your range a bit and, and take a poke at them makes sense i mean very common term in our industry is spy busters during like, you know, during regular waterfall season where you see people in the marsh that don't know what they're doing and they're taking those long pokes. But snow goose, it sounds like it's a little different. I wouldn't call it sky busting because, I mean, you're choked differently too. You're using different loadouts and different, you know, where you're set up for them long shots, but you have to be prepared to take those long shots. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's just, that's probably the biggest gripe. Like, I think if you talk to any waterfowl guy or, probably any guide in general, um, is, is, is shooting. Um, not just like setting up to take long shots, but you get a lot of guys in and that this may be their one hunt, you know, this year, or this may be their second hunt this year and they only hunt once back home or something. And, um, their shooting is just not up to par. And, you know, I've had quite a few clients, you know, come to me after a hunt and be like, Oh, you know, I know it was a slow day. I'm like, it, it really wasn't a slow day. It was just, you missed, all of your opportunities and like I said, you know, you may only right. have a couple opportunities and, and you missed and, um, and I can't do anything about that. And that's, that's kind of the frustrating part is, is usually it's, it's the shooting. Yeah, I can, I've only, I've done one guided hunt. That was when I first started and I actually did uh, 
a layout hunt on Lake Michigan. Okay. Which was complete. At that point in time, I'd been shooting a lot of traps, so I had a really, I, I was a better shooter then than I am now. I would say, I, I'd admit for sure. Um, but it was humbling out there. Like it was really hard for me to judge distance out there, and the guides are in a tender boat, two hundred yards away. So it's kind of like, oh, are they close enough? I don't know. And they kept saying, they're like, wait until they're until you think they're close enough, then wait longer. Is all they could pretty much say at that point. I mean, we had two-way radios, and they'd be like, oh, take them, take them. And I'd be like, okay. Like, I thought they were still way too far away. So it was kind of a learning curve. But you hit those shots. But I, I, I'll admit I missed plenty, and I didn't hold that against the guides because they, you can tell they worked to get us on birds because while we were set up, they had two tender boats. The other tender boat took off, and they were out scouting, trying to see if there's a better spot to set up at the same time. I mean, you can't ask for more. Right, right. I mean, as long as you're on the birds and – you know, trusting the guy, knowing when, you know, um, when they say to call a shot. Like, I I uh, had an experience, uh, I think this, it was last fall, where, um, you know, I, I had a group of guys come in, and we were hunting a, a spot for honkers uh, here in Minnesota, and we weren't too far from the road. Uh, we were, I mean, legally, the legal distance. Um, but it was it was a busier road, and we had honkers, you know, flying over us at, at, um, at first light, and... I wasn't worried because I knew they were just going to go out and feed and come back to this loafing spot we had. And, um, and I was letting them go by because they were too high anyways. And these guys were, were, you know, getting on me about not calling the shot. And I was like, well, guys, you know, if we if we win one and they go over the road, we can't get them. And so you guys just got to trust me. And, you know, sure enough, we came back and you know, we shot three or four men that, that uh, three or four men limit that day. Um just a couple hours later than they would have liked. But I think a big thing is, is trusting your guy. And, you know, if, if the guy's worth any, you know, worth any salt, you know, they'll, they'll know when you call the shot. I mean, that's the biggest part of it. I think. One of the part part. And a lot of things that they don't think about is the amount of time you guys spend scouting. I know how much time I send scouting just for me to hunt dogs. I can only imagine your crew and the amount of time you put on. So, you know, the flight patterns of these birds, you've seen them before, you know, they're going to come back. Or they have every other day, so you're confident enough to say we can let them go. If they are going to come back. Yeah, and another thing too is is you know if we hunt, we hunt a lot of the same spots, um, and so I already have areas measured out. Like I'll measure them out. Like I'll pull up on and measure out an area. So I'm like, I know if a goose swings in this way, he's going to be at 55. I know if he's this high over this treetop, he's going to be at 60. So like I have everything measured out prior to it so i know like as soon as they cross that checkpoint where i'm like okay he's crossing that third aspen tree on the right i'm about to yell take him you know sure. and that's how i do it personally just so i don't have to think as much um but uh yeah i mean we're there every you know almost every day scouting and and we like i said we hunt a lot of the same you know traffic fields or even the same feeds over and over again over the years and we know these areas we know how they're going to react especially um that the service I guide for in the fall. We're so close to the cities and these birds are really patternable. So uh, just trusting us and we'll get you on them. So for the guiding, like what's your, what's your equipment set up normally? Are you doing a lot of field hunts? Are you doing a lot of boat water hunts? Like for, for me, it's uh, I would say it's probably 60, 40 water to field. Um, I get put on the water spots mainly because I have dogs. I think there's, a, okay. um, and we're talking fall here for uh, fall honkers and ducks. Um, and so I would say I hunt more water spots. Um, we run, we're a, a Cabela's outfitter, so we run all Avian X. Um, 
decoys, we probably run in the earlier season, 50 to 60 floaters, depending on where we're at, we might put in some full bodies on the grass for, you know, he's probably maybe, I don't know, another two dozen full bodies or something. Um, and then we have a lot here in the early season. We can't use spinners until, until after the split. Um, okay. And so after the split goes, uh, we'll throw, you know, the kitchen sink at them and we'll throw you know, a couple hundred floaters out, a couple hundred full bodies. We have a couple spots that are watered, like a lake edge into a grass field um, that we'll throw just a huge spread at them. With, we have two uh, Cabela's Northern Flight Goose Flappers and we have about six or seven mojos that we'll use as well. Um, and then the, the field spreads look, you know, the same. They're all for, I think they're 400 or 450 uh, Cabela's full body avian X goose, fully flocked decoys with goose flappers and mojos. And we have, uh, yeah, I think a couple dozen full body mallards as well that we'll throw in the field spread as well. Um, so there's a lot of decoys. Yeah. We'll throw the kitchen sink at them, especially late in the season. We hung a lot of the same traffic pits for honkers. It's a pretty common practice here in the Midwest. And, um, yeah, we'll put out a lot of decoys, especially if we're just going to leave them. Um, we'll put out a ton of decoys in the field. So, um, but yeah, that's crazy. Like 650 full bodies. I remember when I was big into field hunting and I had an enclosed trailer and I think I have four dozen full bodies, a couple dozen shells, some silhouettes. I can't imagine putting out 600. I, like I can't even fathom putting out that many decoys. Well, yeah, I mean, especially for those traffic fields, I think it, it really helps just having just a huge mass. Um, oh, absolutely. I can absolutely see that. I mean, you get a handful of, you get a flock of three or five coming and they see that many. I mean, the confidence is there oh, right yeah. away. Definitely. You know, with that being said, though, I think, I think it just being on the X too, if you can find the X, like, um, I did a, a fun hunt with a, a buddy last year. We were trying to get his, uh, his little boy on his first goose. And we had a, a little feed of, of geese marked out and they've been there every single day. My buddy scouted it. And, um, it was only like a flock of like 30, I think. We set out like six or seven full bodies. And I mean, they just sucked, right? That's where they were going for a whole week. I mean, there sure. was no need to set anything else. And we had 30 geese on our heads. And um, I mean, we were calling pretty aggressively too. But even then, I think, you know, if you do your homework, you scout, you're, if you find a good ax and you know that they're going to be there, you know, I think a couple decoys will <laughs> just do the trick too. Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, if you put the time into scout and you get and you can actually get on the X where the birds want to be, I mean, my standard kayak duck hunting spread, if I can get to where they want to be, is two dozen decoys. That's it. Right. And it, it's I mean, right. And it's half a dozen teal, it's half a dozen uh, wood duck, and then it's a dozen mallards in different positions, and maybe a spinner, maybe a spinner, depending on the situation. And that's it. And I really just run a couple of different varieties just to throw a little more color in there. Right. Right. And that, yeah, that's the big thing is I, I've had people ask me, um, you know, like, what do I need to get started? And, um, like when I do the mentor hunts and they're like, what do I need to get started? What do I have to buy? And I'm like, you know, you get your dozen mallards or so, and it's pretty much every puddle duck will come into a mallard. Um, right. You know, you get your dozen mallards. I don't think they need a spinner right away. I, I'm a big fan of a jerk cord. Um, I think spinners are, especially right at, during the first split here in Minnesota. I mean, everyone and their brother has one. So, um, just being a little different, especially if you're on. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, get your dozen mallards and and just do your homework. I'd spend more money on gas driving the truck to go find a spot rather than decoys. 
personally. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, if you can find the birds and get on them, less is more. Right. Right. But then you'll always have those hunts. Like I took a buddy out last year and I scouted it and there were hundreds of birds in this marsh and the marsh has some pressure to it, but there's this little Creek arm that comes up into this pothole that you can barely get a 15 foot canoe into. Like it takes two people twisting it through the reed channels. Like it, it's work. No one goes up there. It's work. So I'm like, we're going to go up there. There's all these ducks. It, it's going to be good. We watched hundreds of birds fly around us and not one would come to us. <laughs> not one. Right. I've watched a thousand birds come off a roost, you know, to our, you know, hundreds of, of Canada full bodies and they won't even give us a look, you know, it's just like some days the birds just wing and they need to, you know, <laughs> birds gonna wing some days. I mean, I, I told him, I'm like, I think I, I'm like, I have a pretty good feeling. I don't think I'm like, I got a pretty good feeling. I'm, I know we're going to see birds and that's the most birds he's ever seen hunting. Cause he just started last year. Right. But, Man, I couldn't get anything to turn. Nothing. I mean, no call, call, spinner, no spinner. We had one missed opportunity because we were working a flock to our right, and we had two Drake mallards coming from our left, hit the water, and take off before I could even recognize, like, what just happened over here. Yeah. <laughs> and he saw him coming, too, and he didn't shoot him. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, well, I thought you would call the shot. I'm like, no, man, I didn't see them. They're in the water. They're in the decoy. Shoot them. <laughs> Just go for don't, it, man. You gotta don't, it at some point. I mean, don't don't wait on me for them. Those are layups. You, if they're in the decoys, you take. You know, if they took, when they left back off, you take them. You don't hesitate. Right, right. Well, I, t I tell my clients that too. I say, hey, you know, it's it's early light. I can't see everything. I can't see. I say, if, if you're confident, you see a duck laying in the decoys, just you know, have it. You know, don't right. don't wait for me on, especially during the early light, because these wood ducks will buzz in. You never know. I, I agree. And that morning I, we had one or one hen mallard coming right away and just drop in and just sit there for five minutes. And, and that got me all amped up. And he's like, and he had, and he's new. So I'm like, I don't care if he shoots a hen, whatever. But I'm like, no, like, no, let's save your hen. And it was two hens anyways last season, but I'm like, save the hen as an oops. Like just, I'm like, I got a good feeling if we already got mallards dropping in and it was just crickets. Right. Right. <laughs> totally miscalled that one. <laughs> <laughs> it does but then you'll have those hunts where you have no confidence and you're like you saw some birds and it just turns out to be like this amazing like everything works out in your favor yeah no that's that i had one of those last year i uh, uh i had my buddy ryan from texas that i was talking about earlier and um a buddy of mine noah and uh we do a we do a duck camp every year up in northern wisconsin uh, northwest wisconsin and i got permission on a little beaver slough and uh, I mean, we scouted like all day. We're trying to find these birds and, you know, we're finding like, you know, your pockets of a dozen or so and just nothing really we're setting up on. And all of a sudden it just starts snowing hard and we're like, well, let's just take an evening hunt in. You know, they act a little crazy in the snow. So we check out the beaver slough I got permission on. I think we saw two dozen birds. I'm like, all right, we go down there and like 50 or 60 ducks just get up out of the cattails. I'm like, okay, this could be interesting. <laughs> we're setting up at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon in this snowstorm. Um, I think we ended up shooting like 14 ducks or 13 ducks or something like that in, in an hour and a half, um, all over, you know, all at 10 yards. I mean, it was just unreal. And it was all widging, gag wall, teal, um, stuff that we normally dunk it up in Northwest Wisconsin. Um, nice. and, uh, yeah, it was just epic. And, you know, we hung in for like an hour and a half and then the snow stopped and the birds stopped flying and we're like, well, we're not going to push our luck. We're just going to get out of here. <laughs> 
right? Clean birds. So I'm guessing that had to have been what around Halloween. Uh, it was right. Yeah, it was right before Halloween, or yeah, during that crazy snowstorm that we had before it got super warm. Yep, because I was in Phillips for that for grouse camp camping in my camper. Oh man! So how could that how could that affect the grouse hunting? Was it was it good because you had fresh snow or no? They it got so cold so fast. From what I could tell, they just pretty much roosted all day. They'd come down to feed and go right back to the trees. I went from that because I was up there that entire week. I got up there the weekend before. I was up there solo that week until Thursday when I my grouse camp buddy come up. I was averaging thirty flushes ish a day. Wow. He got up there and we went to two to three and that and we dumped and we and it was two of us now with two dogs and we went to two to three four flushes. It what the crazy part was. The woodcock became phenomenal, and I figured they would fly right through there. If you could find a pine tree with some low-hanging branches and some snowless ground, almost everyone had a woodcock. Really? Yeah, I, I figured the woodcock would be gone, but no. And the grouse, what, what we did find for grouse is they went from flushing really wild just because of how much pressure was in northern Wisconsin this year. With the Canadian border closed, I've never seen so many grouse hunters up there from out of state. Every day I saw four to seven different license plates from different states. And the ones I'd stop and talk to and chit chat with, I'd say 75% are like, well, we normally go to Canada, but Canada's closed, so we came here. Wow. Wow. That, Even so, during that, go ahead. I, I was just curious. So it's almost like the woodcock, like the, the um, storm just hit them too fast where they just they had to stay in one place and they couldn't they couldn't migrate that's kind of what it seemed like like they just kind of that or pushed down in the snow and the snow and the, the snow had stopped and the north wind had stopped and they pushed them that hard and they needed a break and we just happened to wind up in that time frame right there but everywhere you found ground without snow you could you almost found a woodcock really that's awesome that's yeah that's crazy so did and you the, did you have the, uh, the warm-up after then? I did I did make it back up to central Wisconsin a couple times through that later warm-up. And I got on birds, but I, I wouldn't say I was, I was happy to have one flush a day where I was hunting because it, it was only with a, an hour and 20 minutes of Madison. I mean, oh. I was central, central Wisconsin. Like, I was nothing anyone would ever consider being grouse country. And that one day and two and a half hours, I actually flushed five birds. Wow. That's I'm like... This is phenomenal. Like this is awesome. I was ho I was hoping to find one a day is what I was hoping to find, and to flush five that one day. And I had a couple other good two or three bird days, and it was such a short drive. I'm like, this is worth it. This is absolutely worth it. Definitely, definitely. But the grouse during that cold snap went from flushing wild to holding ridiculously tight, like super tight to where we had dogs. Yeah like miss them under trees and circle back when they'd catch the wind on like catch like a swirl of the wind and point them. And we had, you could see our footsteps for less than five yards from that tree and they never moved. Wow. It, it was, it was real, like to the point where like my buddy Steve's his, his dog circled back and he goes, at least your dog hunts in front of you. <laughs> and he went to go get his dog and her, she would not leave point. And he got there and sure enough, he flushed a grouse. And we're like, we, and you could see our footprints right next to this blowdown. Man. It was like they went from just these wild flushing birds and finding tons of them to barely finding any 
and they're holding super tight, holding as tight as Woodcock. It makes you think that, like, how many you walked by then, right? I mean, oh, tons. How many the dogs missed? And my dogs, I rescued her at six. She is a rescue, and, and she does good, but I was thinking about that trip afterwards, and all I wanted was my lab. I love my Griff to death. I do. Mm-hmm. She missed out a ton. She started on birds through NABDA through, like, a year and a half, and then he didn't hunt her at all until I got her at six. So she missed all those pivotal years of, and all that bird experience. And for what she is, she's phenomenal. Yeah. And I think she would have been an amazing dog had I had her as a puppy. But I know she misses birds. I know she does. And I know she'd much rather hunt rabbits than fur than feather. I know she does. She's a rabbit dog. She's a better rabbit dog. So I was thinking after that, I'm like, man, I wish I had my lab. Because when I hunted behind him for grouse and woodcock, if we went through an area – I had a hundred percent confidence he did not miss a bird. Mm-hmm. If he caught a scent, he would work it, and he and you could always just watch how he worked those worked the woods, and you could tell how he was chasing a runner. And I just never see my Griff chase a runner like that. Like she will, but not with that intensity and focus. Like she'll lose track of it and like get sidetracked and like go off and do her own like go start hunting scent somewhere else where. Like what just happened? I know there was a bird running. I didn't see it flush. Like get back on the scent, and like my lab would have just been laser focused on that bird until it found it. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said for for a dog's yellows in the sense of um, what what you can teach them and what I mean, just they just have naturally. And I I don't know how important overall a dog's nose is in general, um, but I think every now and then, like you said, you know, you just get a bird that's a runner. And, you know, like my male dog, and I'm not trying to disparage my, my female or anything, but his, you know, my male dog's, you know, is just something about it. Like he can just find any bird in the county and, uh, you know, like you shoot a wounded like goose or duck or whatever it lands in the county. It's like, no, no worry. You just send him in there. He'll, he'll figure it out. You know, and he'll be, he'll maybe be 80 yards to the West, but he'll have it, you know? Right. And, and, and that and that was my lab. Even in the thickest, nastiest pine swamp, if we would have wing of grouse and it would go in there, I had no doubt he would find that bird. He would find it. He had kind of a hard mouth at times. So depending on the retrieve, it might be missing some few feathers occasionally, but he would yeah. find that bird. Whereas I have to really get my grip to focus on hunt dead in order to even get her sometimes to help me find the bird, even if I know I shot it. Like I can watch it fall and like know in a general idea and get her there. And even sometimes then she still is like, does it. And that's on a lack of training when she was younger. And I only can, I work on it. I probably could work on it harder, but I've also kind of come to it where she's going to be 10 in February. And I kind of got to just accept she is what she is at a point too. Right. Right. Like, I know you can teach an old dog new tricks. I don't believe in that saying at all. Cause I've seen how much she's learned since I've got her. Uh-huh. But I think we just started too late in the game for her. Yeah, and it's kind of like why not like put pressure on her, but, right. you know, like just enjoy it. Just enjoy what you have and at this point and, and, and hunt with her. Just have fun, you know. And, then, and that's exactly what I've, 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 I don't compare her to my lab. I don't compare her to any dog. She's her own personality. She's I love her to death. I, I'm i not – it's not like I'm be like, ah, she's a tool. I'm getting rid of her. Nothing like that. I mean, she's my dog. And, and I just enjoy – I mean – there's times where she misses birds and I have one flush wild where I'm like, you should have pointed that, but it's like, you know what? You're not perfect. It's it's all right. I, you have amazing points. I mean, I'm getting a woodcock mounted. That was a perfect point flush. She was steady to the shot. 
and she retrieved it perfectly. I mean, I'm getting mounted because I mean, that's such a monument for us where yeah. everything worked out. And that day she hunted awesome. And the next day she was just like completely blanking birds, like, like, oh, whatever, there's a scent there. And then I'd walk that way and a bird would flush and be like, what happened? Like, this is like night and day, like you flipped yeah. off the switch. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I, I used to struggle with, um, kind of mentioned earlier, is like comparing or other comparing to other dogs. Like I used to, you know, you're on social media and you see everyone posts just the best parts of their dog, right? Right. I'm trying to be conscious of, of not, of, of trying to talk about their mistakes in the caption as well, or, or not just like posting these videos and just saying like, wow, look at, you know, what Spock's doing, right? You know, or look right. at how good my FIGO is, you know? And, um, because I think you can get down a rabbit hole because, you know, dogs aren't robots. You know, they every, every dog makes a mistake. I don't care if you're, you know, Barton Ramsey's dog or if you're, um, you know, my dog. I mean, they all make mistakes. And um, I think, you know, everyone should get out of hunting what they want to. And um, I think, you know, probably for you, definitely for me, it, it, it's dog work. You know, and like we talked oh, yeah. about, it's, it's the dog work. And that's what, that's what really makes it for us. And, you know, um, just being happy with them being out there and and just just having fun and you know because they, they don't live forever you know they don't and so just just hanging out with them and because they're just as excited to be out there whether you shoot a bird or not they're just they just oh, absolutely. Work, you know and you know they get excited the next day even though you don't you know you don't shoot a bird that day they'll get excited that night and getting ready to go again so I mean, just grabbing the collars or like my lab, you grab a gun case. It was game on. Like I'd go to shoot trap and he'd be like, uh, uh we're, right. no, where are you going? No, I don't right. think so. Or, or right. even if he would hear a bell on TV. He would hear a bell on TV and all of a sudden he was up looking around like, where are we going? Where's the bell? It's up playing hunting time. Let's go. Right. Right. I, uh, I have all my gear in the basement. And so if I, the, the basement handle has a, I live in an old home. So the basement handle has a very distinct noise to it. And if they hear that, you can hear them ripping around the house because they know I'm going down to go get my my uh, waders and my decoys and whatnot. And uh, yeah, it's just you know, it's just about being out there and enjoying it with them and not caring. I used to be way too hard on my dogs, um, and I, you know, I still I still am. I, I still have a standard of obedience, of course. And you know, when we're when I'm guiding, especially, it's like you know, these these clients are paying for this. You right. Know, the dog kind of plays a back burner. I mean, they love seeing the dog work. But, you know, your dog can't be up in their business while they're trying to eat their lunch or um, you can't be jumping on them. It, you can't be barking at them, you know, stuff like that. Right. Like there has to be a standard of obedience and of, of performance. And um, see, there, there's still that aspect. But I used to be like, oh, my dog didn't make that blind retreat just perfectly or it slipped a whistle on, you know, before I cast it or auto cast it. And I used to just like go home and be like, God, what am I doing with myself? You know, and like, sure. Like, gosh, is this dog going to be a good duck? And I'm like, I realized I'm like, man, you know, just get out there and like, yeah, you know, you need your obedience, you need all that, but, um, you know, they'll figure it out and they do the work and they're figuring it out. And, you know, I you shouldn't expect younger, you know, younger dogs to, to do crazy things. And that was kind of back to when I used to compare them to other dogs. I see a, a pro trainer's two year old dog, um, you know, being a master hunter and competing in trials at that point and picking up 2000 birds. And I'm like, well, my two year old dog doesn't do that. And it should. And yeah, right. it's not the case. It's just not the case. I, I, that's not even a fair comparison. Cause by two, that dog's probably that pro trainer's dog by two has probably seen more retrieves than a standard hunter's dog will see in its entire lifetime. 
Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and, you know, and not that I'm, I, I run my dogs like a lot. I mean, there's guys that run their dogs vastly more than I do. I mean, their dogs pick up so many more birds than, than mine do. I would say my dogs definitely pick up more birds than just being on the average weekend warrior. Um, and so it, it's kind of cool for, I get a really big uh, uh, enjoyment out of when the clients come out and, you know, they get to see kind of a, a different level of dog than maybe like they're just buddies or their neighbor's dog back home that they may hunt with a couple times a year. Um, again, not trying to, to diminish any other dog's reputation or anything like that. Just saying like when you have a dog that, really knows its job and, and does it a lot and that's the big thing it's just experience um it's kind of fun well, to, to see the look on a, a a grown man when you know i just you know casting my dog at 175 yards and just picked up a wounded goose in a rice field it, it's it's pretty cool i mean absolutely i mean you just do i mean they have so much repet that repetition in the blind that just practice makes perfect and you have that obedience like you said so i mean Steady's got to be a huge thing for you, especially with guiding. I mean, just yep. for the safety factor alone, your dogs have to be steady. And I've, I've hunted with plenty of dogs, and I'll even admit my lab was not the most steady dog a lot of times. I mean, when we actually, we could train all day long, even into the point of it being a hunting situation, like with layup lines and decoys and someone else throwing it, and he'd be steady. But you put him in the excitement of the hunt, I, it was a 50-50 chance if he'd actually be steady or not. I mean... And I had a lot of time into him, and I probably that's where I can see hunt tests really helping with that because you get that more of a hunting level experience and hunt training more with the club so you can yeah. simulate it at even a higher level. But now you have a dog like yours where you've spent so much time in the blind and you've been able to focus on the dog as well to make those corrections and steady the. I mean, right. just that alone is so huge. Well, and of course, they still break, you know, it yeah. happens, you know. Like I said, they're not robots, and sometimes, I mean, when you have, like, we've had a couple spins of, of snow geese, which a spin is basically, you'll have just this massive wad of snow geese come over the top of you, and then they'll just start to trickle down one by one, and then in bigger flocks and bigger flocks, and you want to let as many as you can land. That way, you just get the biggest concentration of birds, and then you just let them have it. And, sure. you know, if you got snow geese walking out in front of you at 30 yards, and then you got another 1,000 on top of you, I mean... Excitement will get to, you know, stuff happens. Um, steadiness is definitely a priority, though. I mean, as far as safety concerns, especially right. lookouts, um, you know, and my dogs are steady. And, you know, of course, you know, they, they break every, you know, my female is less inclined to break, and um, she did last season, and it happened, you know, once or twice, but, you know, like I was there to correct it, and nothing, right. was, you know, uh, unsafe. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it happens sometimes it's just a little too much for them and that's okay you know they're, they're dogs. i mean you want to i mean that not to make an ex excuse out of it but i mean you want them to still have that excitement i mean if they're no longer getting excited i mean you're going to lose performance in the long run i mean now do i want what i want my dog to be as steady as a rock yeah who doesn't i mean that's the goal but if they break occasionally because the excitement just got so much to them and they're running around like ah yeah, correct it, but at the same time, I'm still happy to see it because that means they're still loving what they're doing. Right, right, exactly. And like, I'm a, <laughs> I actually remember my when my female broke because she she never broke in her whole career before, and I was I just knew I was like I'm just waiting for waiting for her to. She's going to at some point, and um, we had hung a 
uh, for I think 10 hours at that point. We started at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. and um, we're almost to the end of our hunt and we didn't shot a bird. We'd sat in our layouts the whole day, had not shot one bird, hadn't even had a bird close. And all of a sudden this little lone Ross goose comes over the top, circles for like 15 minutes, okay? Finally, I just yell, take them, and, you know, 10 guys sit up and unload on it. And uh, the bird died, and I literally popped my, my layup blind open to go say one of their names, and she just bolted out, one just grabbed it. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> she, she waited patiently for 10 hours. Boy, you know, it happens. No big deal. No, well, who do you do you have anybody you want to thank? Any any sponsors or anything with the you want to? Well, I mean, shout out your business. Whoever you want, to let us know yeah, who so you guide for. I, and I currently guide in the fall for uh, First Flight Finishers out of the Twin Cities. Um, we're uh, a, you know a good operation. We're all within the metro area, so if you, you know you live in the metro area, we can get you on a lot of half day hunts and get you back to work. Um, there's a lot of openings, so call my boss. Um, you know, if you go to the First Flight Finisher website, you can find uh, the, the booking number. Um, as for the springtime, a guy for New Outdoors, NEU, um, fantastic operation. Like I said, he's been doing it for 20 years now, and they'll get you on birds, and you can, I mean, you'll get on them. He guides from uh, Arkansas, Missouri, up to South Dakota, uh, two parts of South Dakota, Yankton and Crestbard. Um, so give him a shout if you're looking to kill snow geese at any time in the spring. Um, other than that, um, you know, just shout out to my hunting buddies, I guess, you know, all the guys I spend time with, you know, Caden, Ryan and Noah and those guys. And, um, yeah, that's about it. I just appreciate you having me on. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. How can they find you on social media? I mean, Instagram, of course. And yeah, if you want them on, if, if you friend request random people on Facebook, go ahead. <laughs> um, I have a Facebook. I don't use it as much. Instagram is the number one way. Uh, I just share a lot of photos of my dogs, to be quite honest. Uh, nothing glamorous. I don't have a fancy camera or anything, but it's a lot of dog photos. I, I fish in the summertime. I do a little fly fishing. and um, It's Anthony Outdoors. I believe it's Anthony underscore Outdoors. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me. Well, all right, man. I appreciate you being on. And for everyone listening, thank you for joining us. And until next time, oh, I probably should do the outro too. So here we go. That, now they won't. I, and I know, I know the paddle and fin guys that run this show. They will not edit any of this out. So we're just going to leave this in here. We're just going to put the closer on now. So here we go. Until next time. Thanks everybody. for tuning in to another killer episode on paddle and fin. Don't forget to go check out our website at paddle, the letter N, and fin.com. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel at Paddle and Fin. If you got a question, comment, want to hear from a future guest on a future episode, feel free to email us at paddle, the letter N, and fin at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paddle and Fin on Facebook and Instagram. Shout out to our show supporters, Angler. The Angler button and app just makes for a better time on the water and creates a virtual logbook for every fishing outing out on the water. Shout out to Rocktown Adventures, located in northern Illinois, for all your kayaking, camping, and hiking needs. Shout out to Jigmasters Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com.